everybody, welcome back to the show, Science, Facts, and Fallacies, episode 251. So good to be with you. My name is Cameron English, host as always, joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn, physician, toxicologist, real sharp lady here to answer all of the questions, all the technical science stuff that I don't figure out. Liza's here to do that. How you doing? <laughs> good to see you. Fine. How are you? Good to see you. Do you have a good day? I did. I have a two-year-old, so my week just kind of fly. It's just a flurry of like diaper changes and work and and then now we're here so i'm like oh good we're good we get to get to have a conversation <laughs> with an adult that isn't my wife <laughs> there you go exactly <laughs> i love my wife in case she watches this by the way i just mean that you know you're stuck in a house with one person and uh, a two-year-old so anyways uh, to you, i did yeah. want to start though with a funny story because we we text throughout the week talking about things we're going to discuss on the show and you sent me a, a link to a tweet where <laughs> I don't, <coughs> excuse me, I apologize for sending like a seven-year-old smoker. I've got a, f a cold or something. Um, <laughs> you sent me a, a link to a tweet and it was a, a physician or a nutrition, some, some guy who was talking about the fact that um, statins, which are cholesterol-lowering drugs, are comparable to Oreos apparently. And so, and so I looked at, the, I looked at this and I was like, this is just some like low-carb goon who's like, yeah, eat Oreos because statins are evil, right? And, and so I sent that to you. I said, so as you're saying statins are bad, and you're saying, no, there's actually a, some cases genetically where this makes sense for people, like where, where because of their phenotype or whatever, you could do this, and it would, it would actually help, apparently. And I was like, okay, but what he's saying is Oreos are the same as statins. You're like, no, 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 no. That's how it's going to be interpreted. But but what he's at, and I, and I went oh I think I just proved your point right it was just so funny you know because like the focus of the show in so many cases is you know have your have your critical thinking cap on or whatever cliche you want to use be skeptical but even when you were you know giving me info and saying here's how to understand it I was like oh so like this you're like no <laughs> so I, I mean you don't have to do a deep dive on statins but maybe if you could just give people a little background on on what was going on there yeah it's. Well, it was actually kind of funny, and I, I haven't followed through on reading it in, in great detail, but the funny part was that uh, it's a medical student who's doing um, research at, I believe, Harvard, and decide, and has, high, has a uh, genetically acquired high cholesterol level. Um, and so what he did was he realized, he thought about the reason why his cholesterol levels are high and came up with a theory that you, you could actually uh, reduce it um, by eating Oreo cookies because you can refill re, re, um, the glycogen levels in your liver. Mm. Um, and then, so anyway, long and short is um, he did an N of one study on himself and ate Oreo cookies instead of statins and demonstrated in his particular phenotype or the, his, the, his particular genet, genetic makeup um, that it did, did uh, lower his cholesterol. And so he went and said, retweet this, this is awesome, and then had a conversation with Walter Willett, who is very, as some people who listen to the show might know, who's a Harvard researcher that is very anti-meat and plant-based diet and very has gone after people who have a different opinion about healthy eating. And so it was kind of interesting to see them have a very brief snippet of a conversation. But uh, there's there's more to learn from this. I haven't read it in great detail, but it's gotten tweeted all over the place. And of course, people are talking now about all the downsides about statins. And I would just 
recommend that people not uh, give up statins and, and, and in place of or- and to have Oreos take their place at the moment. This is that's probably bad medical advice to do that. So <laughs> follow your doctor's advice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Always, always a good starting point is to say, what is my doctor? The person who has expertise <laughs> and knows my medical history. What do they think of? <laughs> stuffing Oreos of this, yeah. Instead of a, you know, right. and I'm, and it's not to say that stat. And again, it goes in the reverse direction, right? It's not that statins are universally good for treating cholesterol. No, the, I think the point is is that there's nuance here that you might there's you could nuance. gloss over very easily if you're not careful, as I very nicely demonstrated, right? <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, there's also a campaign against statins, statins, which are very good drugs for the people who need them, but there's a campaign against them that's a little bit anti-scientific as well, and that actually goes all the way back to Stephanie Seneff. <laughs> you don't say. You don't say. The I lady do, yeah. that thinks glyphosate yeah. causes school shootings also doesn't like <laughs> statins. There's yes, a, there's a so. campaign against every drug, I guess, is the... Uh, the, the message here. Moral of yeah. the story. Anyways, yeah. okay, let's get into our stories. I just thought that was amusing, using myself as the guinea pig who uh, who gets things wrong, right? So just be careful online. That's that's all. That's all there's to it. Yeah. Okay, but in any case, three stories as usual. So first up, chronic inflammation may be a disease of affluence. Uh, second, is it safe to have your ancestry data online? Here's what experts say, and this is in lieu uh, a couple months ago of a data breach at 23andMe, which we're going to talk about. And finally, we're going to do a story that I wrote a little while back for uh, the American Council on Science and Health. Are corporations in Western countries shackling African agriculture to suit their interests, or is it anti-GMO groups doing the shackling? Intriguing stuff, as always. A classic for us, Liza. Uh, but this mm-hmm. first story, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this, um, because it seems to line up with certain ideas that are in many cases deemed fringe or outside of the you know the scientific acceptability if they're taken to an extreme but let's let's start here so this is by um ross Pomeroy. he's the the editor of real clear science which is a great website if you're trying to get sort of like a rundown of everything that's happening in science just read rcs because they keep a good aggregation daily of what's going on um and ross is a sharp guy and a great writer so He's writing here for Big Think, and he's talking about some research looking at the difference between children who grew up in wealthy countries like the United States and poorer countries in other parts of the world. Um, And the idea here is that we live in such clean environments, especially coming out of COVID when you think about it, right? There's hand sanitizer everywhere. Everyone's cleaning everything constantly. Everybody's isolating Right, so so not just COVID, but as you know, over over the centuries, as we get wealthier and as we try to keep things cleaner, this seems to mm-hmm. possibly have some some downstream um, and some harmful effects. In that you're not exposing your immune system to relatively harmless pathogens that it needs to learn to recognize and get stronger as a result. So when you encounter stuff that can hurt you, your immune system knows how to fight it. And the hallmark of this, according to this research, and this is from a a study that was published in the um, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, so a very reputable journal. um, And as far as I can tell from this researcher, this is someone who's who's a a genuine scholar. Um, But in the in in these countries, is in our country, like United States and Canada and Europe, as kids get older, they start to experience chronic inflammation, and it shows up as like aches and pains or low-grade fever, but it's chronic, it's ongoing. It's not fatal or very serious, but people experience it throughout their lives. 
and so this is um, his hypothesis, and, and it's an interesting sort of an A-B comparison here, Liza. He says, well, here's what's happening in the first world, um, but he says the literature on this has been skewed because you only do studies in the U.S. or in Europe. Mm-hmm. When you look at people in other countries, um, and I forget the exact ones, I think the Philippines and some other places that are developing, they're not quite to where we are yet, um, people are growing up in, and I don't mean this as a pejorative, but they're growing up in dirtier environments, um, there's, there's just, it's just less clean. And because of that, their immune yep. systems are working harder, but they're also working out. They're getting stronger and they're more robust as a result of that. And so when you look at these people, you don't see the hallmarks of chronic inflammation. And so here's, here's Ross's summary, uh, of, of this idea and like, how, like, Here's the problem and what do you do about it? So Ross says, is there a, a, a remedy for widespread chronic inflammation? Proper diet and exercise can help as they do for almost any, any ailment. But if this hypothesis is correct, a longer term cure is providing the immune system with a reasonable adversity early on. Parents don't have to let their kids crawl around landfills. Uh, bad idea. <laughs> but a little, a little yes. more dogs and dirt and a little less hand sanitizer and antibacterials seems reasonable. Okay. So, so take, take it away, explain what's going on here. But the fascinating part to me is that there's a lot of people in the anti-vaccine camp who will do, will take this line of logic, but they will go to an extreme with it, which is don't use a vaccine because your immune system is your, your God given, you know, sword and shield and it's going to protect you. So, so exactly. And then, then, and then there's a whole sort of thread along the microbiome ways, right? So let's go back to drinking raw water. Let's stop pasteurization because your exposure to these, these microbes may be beneficial. So you have to walk a fine line there. So um, I, I believe in water sanitation. I believe in uh, pasteurization. I think that they are very important advances for human health. Now, that said, the hygiene hypothesis has been around for a right. while. Um, and it's really interesting because in 20. 2010 or 2011, I took a course in Bethesda, Maryland in tropical medicine. And it was really fascinating because one of the guys that was doing research right in this area um, came up with some really interesting findings. So he was a physician, researcher um, in tropical medicine, and he infected uh, mice that were genetically modified to develop diabetes, type 1 diabetes, right? Uh, Mice that were genetically modified to develop type 1 diabetes and infected them with whipworm. And they didn't get diabetes, which is really interesting. So it makes it made it sort of people started paying attention to these things. Um, in that, if you have a parasitic infection, your immune system's turned on, and if your immune system's turned on and trained from when you're a child on, um, it can actually distract the, the parasites can distract the immune system from uh, organs that belong to you so it can maybe help diminish autoimmunity Mm. is the thought and there are some studies that suggest that if you uh, have whipworm infections or you have nematodes or roundworms if you have these kinds of uh, gut infections that the immune system is less um, prone to um, uh, having issues with uh, autoimmune disease and they've said this about diabetes now what's really interesting though is if you look at uh, India as a, as a continent, and the uh, incidence of diabetes actually is fairly high there, even though people are 
physically fit. They, the, the, the typical diabetics actually slender, not obese like the, like they are in the in the United States, um, and and they have a much higher burden of uh, you know exposure to uh, worms and parasites and you know bacterial infections too. So I don't know whether or not I truly believe that this is the case, but it is the case that. Is in Western uh, in Western uh, countries, you tend to see a higher incidence of autoimmunity and a higher incidence of um, of uh, inflammatory disease. Now, I think that we also have more obesity, which makes us more prone prone to chronic in- inflammation as well. So, um, I think the jury is out on this. I think it's a very interesting idea. It may be that your own phenotype, your own genetic makeup that it, that you express. Maybe the maybe the reason why some people uh, appear to respond to this and other people don't. So I I, I think uh, it's a neat idea, um, and I think it's it's okay for kids to be outside playing. I think they probably should. It's probably good for their mental health as well as their physical health, rather in front of rather than being in front of a computer all the time. But uh, I think the jury's still out on it. Definitely ongoing, and nothing's conclusive. Maybe that's the biggest difference between the folks who say. You know, don't take vaccines, don't take medicine because you have your immune system. Like they're, they're definitive about it. Whereas what the evidence seems to suggest is there may be something going on here. There may be some signal in this noise, but let's look into it, you know. So like, for example, yes. I've seen, this was years ago, but I've seen some data suggesting that kids that grow up on farms or in rural areas, they're exercising a lot. They don't call it that. They call it climbing trees and, you know, fishing or whatever. Yes. But they're outside, they're in the sun, they're running around, they're socializing. And it, as yep. a result of that, they're exposed to dirt and they're exposed to probably not terribly harmful things, but their immune system has to work harder. So, you know, maybe there's something here. We just we just yes. can't say with, with confidence yet. But it's fascinating to think about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it seems, just a final thought, like with my son, who's who's rapidly growing up, he's two and a half right now, when we turn off the TV and we let him play, he just goes for it, right? It's 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 an, it's instinctive. You know, if you let him go outside and run around, he will. And if you let him build That's stuff, right. he, you know, so I, it seems to make sense, right? The whole, like the argument that, you know, we're, there's a mismatch between our genetics and our modern environment. There seems to be some validity to that. I agree. Okay, let's move on though. This uh, is, I don't know, this is, this is quite troubling to me. Maybe it's just because of you know, my value on, on autonomy and privacy. But this is a story originally from uh, Yahoo Life by uh, Kathy Cassida. And it's called, uh, Is it safe to have your ancestry data online? Here's what experts say. So apparently it was back in September or October, I want to say, the website 23andMe. And this is, this is one of those companies where you spit in a tube and you send them the, the package and then they map all your genetic data and they say, hey, you're from this place and you're related to this person and we'll get into, you know, some of the health claims they make. I don't think that's very robust, but they'll also say, you know, you have this allele for blah, 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 and you might be at risk for whatever. Um, yeah. So anyways, this is the kind of data that they have, that they collect and that they can, they can uh, inform you about. Um, but it seems it's mostly novelty. People are like, where am I from? Who am I related to? But this sets up a problem, right? Is you have these effective, these giant databases with the gen- genetic information 
of millions yeah. upon millions of people. So last year, um, some hackers didn't break into 23andMe's database, but they were able to forget the technical term for it, but they were able to sweep up a bunch of password and username information from people because they were reusing passwords for multiple websites. So mm -hmm. their Amazon password was the same as their 23andMe password, for example. So don't do that. There's your first lesson. Change your passwords. <laughs> make sure they're different from one another. But anyways, people swept up or these hackers swept up all this data and they tried to sell it through online forums. And it was put to a stop. They, I think they discovered what was going on. Um, but this is really alarming, not because you have people just trying to steal your data and sell it, but in, in collective terms, when you have big corporations or big powerful governments with access to this information, uh, what happens? You know, And maybe it's not even something um, illegal, strictly speaking, but what if they sell your data to another company that makes pharmaceutical mm -hmm. drugs or you know, wants to sell you supplements? or you know, There's all sorts of possibilities here. Um, and this is what they're trying to explore in this study, and they, or excuse me, in this article. And they talk to a couple of experts, um, and they say, we don't really know what happens. This seems like it could be alarming. There's lots of possibilities, but it hasn't happened on a broad scale, and, and it's relatively new. Right. I don't know how long these companies have been around. I want to say like 10 or 15 years, maybe, something like that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I don't know how old 23andMe is, but it's, it's at least 10 years, yeah. I think. And, so it's been around. Most importantly, when it comes to um, medical care, because... You know, your, your healthcare providers have access to a lot of your genetic data for your blood tests and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a federal law called HIPAA that protects your privacy, but this doesn't apply to consumer companies like 23andMe. You're basically, you're locked into their terms of service. So if they afford you any privacy protection, they're basically allowed to stipulate it in, in the, the terms of service. Yeah, so a couple things about that real quick. Um, HIPAA doesn't, HIPAA it theoretically protects your health information, and it's actually sometimes frustrating for doctors to try to talk to other doctors, if they, especially if they're a small group of people like toxicologists. There are not very many of us. Um, but hospitals can, can sell your information, and EPIC, which is one of the programs that is a data collection mechanism, can sell your, your, your health information, too. They say it's de-identified, but this is, not a, this is not a problem that is unique to uh, 23andMe. Um, this is also hospitals and, and uh, other uh, electronic rec record mechanisms are selling your data as well. So... Um, so HIPAA kind of does some stuff, but not always. Not, people imagine that it's a little bit more protective than it is. Um, in terms of 23andMe, the thing that concerned me the most was, well, if you could actually get into people's DNA data, you could get information about diseases. You can also get in, in, information about ancestry um, and use that nefariously. So one of the big concerning things uh, was that I think it was, was it 14,000 Ashkenazi Jewish people were identified through I this? I think so, yeah. And it, given, the, given the situation that's going on in Israel and given, you know, global uh, issues around that, that can be very scary for people. So that's concerning. Um, the other thing that could be concerning is that you know that um, law enforcement agencies have used uh, DNA information to go and tar find um, criminals, and that, however, that works is fine. But you you also wouldn't want an illegal organization coming and finding your family members if you were in in you know some kind of trouble. So I think that this actually could present a huge problem. Um, 
not just from the genetic standpoint, but from the networking standpoint that this goes through. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a problem, and we need to figure out how to make sure that people's data is very, very rigorously protected. Yeah. And another fascinating question, and I, I read a book about this years ago called Who Owns You by a philosopher named David Kepsel. Um, and he's talking about, you know, who owns your DNA? Is it you? I mean, that's the natural... Uh, or the, you, that's sort of the baseline, right? I mean, it came out of my body, right? But when you think about DNA, it's like, it's universal, right? Most organ, yes, that's right? right? That's the genetic code for almost everything with the exception of a, Life, a few, yeah. like microorganisms, I think, right? Yep. So, you know what I mean? Like, do you really own it? Is it owned collectively? Is it, right? These are the kind of questions that we're just starting to grapple with. And that's what really freaks me out is, um, I don't think the best answer seems to be, you know, be as, you know, close to the chest as you can with your gen of all your information, your genetic data. You know, don't that's don't exactly share it right. And what's with don't share it unless you have to. And the the other thing that's really kind of interesting is that's a real good philosophical question. That's a kind of the same level of um, you know whether you as an individual human being are like you know the it's the balance between the benefit for the community and, and the individual. And I'm a, my, I tend to lean much more towards the individual rights within the, the limitations of the community. Um, you know, but I, I think it's an interesting philosoph philosophical question to, to think about. Um, you are unique as uh, the, the way your DNA is expressed has made you as a completely unique person from somebody else. Um, and I think that that's a fascinating uh, balance, right? Yeah. And she goes into some, uh, like some ideas that you can do to protect yourself, but there's sort of, and it's not her fault. It's just, it's, there's only so much you can really say at this point. So she talks about, you know, be careful who you sh who you share personal information with, health information with. You know, change your passwords. What like one of the things two factor authentication, right? You know, so like with a lot of banks and financial institutions, you have to put in a password, but then they'll send you a text message that says, "Okay, type this this code in on the other device that you're trying to log in." That kind of thing. But it seems that you know, there's there's so much deeper issues that we have to deal with like namely like how is this how is this technology going to be used and regulated you know the problem and we've talked yes. about this with when we talk about you know uh, embryo selection and those kind of technologies it's not that it's going to it's not going to work the problem is it's going to work exactly as intended <laughs> and we That's have not right. really evaluated the long-term consequences of that i agree Okay, well, go check out this article um, and read read Kepsel's book, Who Owns You? I read it years ago, so I don't remember a lot of the specifics. But he outlines some interesting ideas for how you could protect your privacy um, and how you could regulate this and how you could actually make sense of you know the intellectual property in this case. It's really, really interesting stuff. So check out that. Check out the Yahoo Life article. Um, and let's move on to uh, our uh, at least one of my favorite topics, and not because it's a good thing, but but we're talking about <laughs> talking about activist groups um, moving into Africa and lying to people about biotechnology and trying to lobby their governments uh, to restrict access to biotech crops and pesticides, fertilizers, just typical modern agricultural tools that farmers here use without incident to grow our food, mm -hmm. and it's mostly done for. Uh, for ideological reasons. So here's the here's the title 
on the story. So uh, are corporations in Western countries shackling African agriculture or is it the activist groups doing the shackling? My answer, um, and this is my article from American Council on Science Health, it's the activist groups doing the shackling. So as we've discussed multiple times on the show, um, technologies like biotechnology, synthetic fertilizers, all the different pesticides we've discussed have done enormous things, incredible things to improve uh, food production. We're talking about, like from the 1960s, global agricultural out output was about a billion dollars, or a trillion, a mm-hmm. trillion dollars. In 2019, it's four trillion. It's an yep. enormous output. And, and in terms of keeping people alive, a billion people survived that period and went on to live life and have children yep. and all that because they had enough food to eat. So... It, this isn't this isn't to say GMOs feed the world. That's not the argument. The argument is there's these different technologies that go on to improve food production over time, especially as breeding methods improve. Um, you can fight off disease. You can fight off weeds, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a great thing because more food means cheaper food, which means fewer yep. sick people. Um, more income for agriculture means other people can move into other sectors of the economy. And then pretty soon you have a civilization with airplanes and you know electric right. cars and all, like all the things that we enjoy, uh, you know iPads and Kindle, all this stuff, right? It all starts because our fundamental needs are met, and a part of that is a big part of that is agricultural technology. Um, but there's there's this group of people, and it's it's usually the same typical, <laughs> you know. There's like a there's there's stereotypes, right? And the Western activist is a stereotype. You know, it's like someone mm-hmm. that lives in a big city in a high-rise apartment. They have no idea what they're talking about. They maybe have a law degree, and then they take up a, a career in talking about agriculture, with no interest in what farmers or, or scientists think. Um, and this is the this is the problem here. So it's uh, specifically I'm responding to a magazine called Jacobin Magazine, and they are, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. But they're an explicitly socialist. Marxist outlet. They say they're the voice of socialism in America. Um, and and the, the thesis is one we've talked about in different forms before. It's that, you know, you have these powerful, wealthy corporations like Monsanto, which is not a thing anymore. They go into these countries, they hook farmers on their pesticides and their, their patented seeds. Um, and then these, these farmers become addicted to these technologies. Um, but they have to keep buying them and then they, they're stuck in a cycle of debt and then the technology doesn't work as well as they're promised and then they're still poor and now they're slaves to Western corporations and then the world's going to fall apart, right? Um, it's utterly silly. This is not, uh, for a variety of reasons, this is not true. One, of course, is that a lot of farmers want this technology and it's yes. groups like, uh, or magazines like Jacobin and the, the group that they're talking about, um, about here is the Rosa Luxemburg foundation they're in germany they are they're also a socialist explicitly socialist nonprofit advocacy group and they go into these countries and they lobby their governments to say don't use these technologies you need to ban these technologies then they turn around and they go look these technologies don't work you know the farmers don't even grow them it's like well yeah because right you're making it illegal to do it <laughs> um that's exactly so yeah right. let me stop talking because i need to cough share your thoughts here Liza. what do you think <laughs> Yeah, I think this is an absolute example of Lysenkoism to the T, right? So if if, if take even well, if you want to take it from the socialist lens, uh, socialists don't have a really great track record for um, growing food, 
right? So if you look at the Holodomor, if you look at, you know, collectivization of farms and things like that over and over and over again, when that, when, when they follow the methods suggested by socialists like Trotham Lysenko, you get mass famine. The UN has got a policy that as a international human right is the right to food and the right to health. And so in order to fulfill that idea, farmers in sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia who are at most risk of uh, crop failure and, and malnutrition and insect-borne illness should be able to get access to the same technologies that liberated the West from the subsistence farming. There's this romantic notion that subsistence farming is somehow uh, beneficial and wonderful and good for the environment when it really shackles women and children to the land um, and makes them completely dependent on their small crops for output to survive. And if the, 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 if like I've always said on the show, in 1900 in the West, uh, we lived to the ripe old age of 45, and 45% uh, of the farm, uh, population farmed. And now, because of the scientific advances in farming, which are as impactful to uh, public health as vaccines and antibiotics, if not more so, because food security is really, if you're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Food security is the is the basis of being able to blossom, right? Um, so in 2000, you've got two percent of the population farming, um, and in in out of the United States, not only are they farming productively, um, but they're exporting 23 percent of what they make. Um, so it's a really crucial for food security globally um, for these tech, for people to have access to these these uh, technologies. And I'm actually going to be talking um, next week to some people in Malawi about the benefits and safety of modern agriculture. And I think that people in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia have this right to have access to the same technologies that have brought brought us this 35 year increase in life expectancy by 2000. The the thing about this that drives me the most bananas is is the ideology that it's attached to. So as you said, um, millions of people died under under these yeah. ideas. You know, so like there's yes. there's farm collectivization in the Ukraine under Stalin. Um, you can read Robert yep. Conquest is a great historian. He wrote a book called Harvest of Sorrow, all about this. Millions upon millions of people just dead because their farms were taken and collectivized, and bad farmers were put on the land. Right. So you take the you take yep. the productive people away. You kill them or you starve them. You put bad people that don't know what they're doing. Everybody starves because no one knows how to grow food. And then Lysenko, of course, had this weird Marxist idea that plants also responded <laughs> the way that humans do. You know, so like you could grow plants that don't grow well in northern Russia, for example, um, because you can teach them. They have, you know, it's it's you can expose them to the that's cold right. and oh, that's right, yeah. So you could toughen them up, uh, and this is the sort of you know, this is the sorry to be you know uh, blunt here, but this is the Marxist fairy tale, which is like you can just remake man with the right yep. incentives or whatever. And of course, we know how that worked out. There's a hundred million fewer people in the world. You know, I didn't. That's yep, not. That's exactly yeah. right. And he, he, he also, his work was fraudulent. Yeah. And and people who tried to stand up to him, like Nikolai Vavilov, 
who is one of the most important plant geneticists of his time. Um, you know, we still use some of his um, plant breeding techniques today. And uh, he, he was, Nikolai Vavilov took him on and Vavilov got sent to the gulag and died of starvation. It's, and so I think that uh, people don't understand quite how fragile this ecosystem is and how important it is to use, follow the evidence. In medicine, we talk about evidence-based medicine. Well, we should be also talking about evidence-based agriculture. And we've got decades of history where, you know, when when Chairman Mao decided to adopt some of uh, Lysenko's ideas, you had, during the Great Leap Forward, he had mass famine. Um, when things got redistributed in Cambodia under Pol Pot, you had massive famine. There, there are lots and lots of examples of this happening. And I, I think that... Uh, it's a human rights issue. Actually, this is not an ideology issue. We, we know what happens when you collectivize farms and get people uh, working on them and that don't have the experience or are using techniques that are popular maybe in the scientific current literature at the time but turn out to be fraudulent. So be careful what you wish for, Jacobin. Yeah. yeah. And if I remember right, Lysenko didn't believe in genetics. No, nope, <laughs> he didn't. believe in genetics. <laughs> He hated geneticists. Mm -hmm. You know, people were criticizing him in the West, and he, you know, he hated everyone that was in the field that actually knew what they're talking about. Yeah, it's it's awful stuff. Um, and that's what's funny to me. You know, so you have Jacobin, and then you have the Rosa Luxemburg Fa Foundation. They're in Germany, by the way, and they're funded by taxpayers, right? So they get the, right Germany, which of course is the the one of the focal points of farmer protests right now. The government pays right them there, yeah. to lobby against technologies that keep people fed. And healthy, which is just preposterous. But that's that was what really motivated me to write the story is that you have these wealthy people that live off the taxpayer um, who work for an organization and they are acolytes of a woman who came from a wealthy family in Poland, right? So Rosa Luxemburg, she's remembered today as this Marxist revolutionary and she's this activist and she's fighting for the people. She was rich and her family was rich and she did dedicate herself to these ideas. That's fine. Good for her. But... Um, now this organization goes all over the world to poor countries and they they tell governments, right? You can read it. I quote it in the story. But they say, you need to give up on this Western corporate vision of agriculture and you need to respect seed sovereignty and da, 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 right? So effectively what you have is a bunch of white, wealthy Westerners lecturing people who want access to technology because they'll use it illegally if you don't give them permission to use it. Lecturing them about how they can't let other uh, wealthy Western white people come into their country. So, so there's just this, um, but it, it, it's, it's hypocrisy and it's outrageous. And what it does is, what it's done is, and it isn't only just limited companies from going into countries, it's limited scientific research that's very good research from happening and, and taking hold that, that is, that people from Africa are doing, right? So if you think about Lena Trapathi um, coming up with a GMO banana, which is the banana is the is one of the staple foods in Uganda, and it's it's under threat by a bacterium called, that causes a disease called banana wilt. There are a couple of different there are some fungi that do similar things, but um, you can genetically modify it. And she came up with her. She's an independent scientist. Came up with a gene and a pepper that prevents that or that makes that banana resistant to that disease. Um, so you've got everything there. You know, she's an independent academic minority who's being told by uh, Western 
colonizers that she shouldn't be using this this technology that could actually help subsistence farmers in Uganda feed their children. And to me, that you know, I don't understand how how they can make any moral claim when they're preventing her from getting her science out there. Yeah, yeah it's it's evil, and it has it has strange support. You know, so the same people here who will complain about. Um, the West is recolonizing the developing world and we need to, we need to decolonize science and we need to take the focus off of this Western way of thinking, you know, the scientific method. That's a, the idea, like that, that's just a serious argument that people make that this is a white man's way of looking at the world. And that's, that's dumb, right? There's great science all over the world and there has been for all centuries. over the world. It's a silly idea, yeah. but it's these people who buy into some of these, these critical theory ideologies who push these very same, ideas and it's yep. it's insane to me that and it, it's it's like scientific american and it's it's major academics at universities in the united states uh you know it's yep. like people that should know better and people who on one yes. hand on on another day will say you need to follow the science and you need to trust the experts except ex- and they're trying yeah. to they're, they're trying to take the moral high ground the moral high ground is you you are these these the advances in agriculture liberated women and children from the land and those women and children were able to do other things they could go to school and things like that people in 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 developing countries should have access to that same technology so so their there's whole societies can rise above the poverty level it's just uh it's unthinkable that 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 there's so much fear-mongering around it if you look at what happened in sri lanka it's exactly because of this kind of advice that was given by people like Bandana Shiva, who went and advised the government that, you know, GMOs are bad and pesticides are bad and fertilizer is bad and it's ruining the planet. Um, and the country goes agrochemical free overnight and then the whole country collapses. Right. That's, that's, not a, that's, not a, that's not a good outcome. Yeah, one other issue I want to deal with. Well, there's two more, but but one, the first one is um, I want to talk about pesticide use because that's another claim they make in uh, the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation or Jacobin, I guess, in this story. Is they say, can you see my screen, Liza? Okay. Yep. So this is a graph from our world and data, and one of the things they say is that you know these Western companies they come over into Africa into uh, Southeast Asia, they dump all of these toxic chemicals into their agricultural system. And then everyone gets sick and they're poisoned and right. You're still paying for expensive chemicals that kill you. I don't know why anyone would do that, but you know, this is the kind of ideology you have to deal with. So this graph is from our world and data. I just wanted to put this visually. This is collectively pesticide use in Africa over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, whatever it is essentially flat. There's a couple of increases. Um, and you know, in a certain, to a certain extent, that's unfortunate because it means that they're, <laughs> they don't have, in many cases, they don't have access to the tools that they need, but all that, to, all that right. to say pesticide use, it's basically flat. I mean, there's a slight increase, right? The trend is positive slightly. If you look at this graph, um, but this is just a lie because they cite the study and they say, uh, you know, there's 385 million pesticide poisonings around the world. Um, and again, this is a great example of why you need to read the links because the study that they cite here is a bad study um it's based on um 
data they had they had I think just over seven thousand cases of deaths that were linked to pesticide poisoning, and then they had seven hundred thousand or so self-reported cases of pesticide poisoning, which if you read the study was self-reported. So so they would go to people in a village and they would say, you know, here are the symptoms of pesticide poisoning. Do you have these? Were you nauseous right. today? Right. And again, <laughs> this is the thing, you know, we really criticize the anti-vax folks or the, the alternative health people when they do this because they will say, um, you know, oh, do you have gastro, gastrointestinal distress? Oh, well, you need to buy my apricidal vinegar because that, that that's stupid. That's, but yes, that's okay. the foundation for the study, right? So they're extrapolating to a massive number from a tiny number, which is dubious, I think, because you can't, you can't yeah, it's very dubious, right? And the assumptions in it are based on self-reported data. So that's silliness, right? So so in other words, one of the fundamental planks in this this article from Jacobin is that there's all these pesticide poisonings. No, there's not. There's you, you this is bad yep. data. Yep. And not to minimize the fact that there are pesticide suicides and all suicides are tragic. That's absolutely mm -hmm. true. And that we need to figure out how to mitigate that. And companies are working on trying to establish poison reporting systems that are harmonized in order to get people the best care and things like that. So nobody wants people to be poisoned and die from pesticides. That's that's terrible. But what what you, we also understand is that without crop protection products, you have a, a, a infant mortality and child mortality because of malnutrition. So you got to really think about the implications that calls for extensive bans will have on on susceptible populations. Uh, yeah. But but it's a it's a balance, right? So you can you can and we've done mm -hmm. this before. Don't drink pesticides. That's not what they're for. They're not beverages. They'll do bad things to you if you drink them. So don't do that. Uh, mm -hmm. And follow the rules because when pesticides yep. are registered, even in developing countries, they come with a label. Um, mm -hmm. And in many cases, interestingly, the the poisonings and the misuse it's tied to illicit products that are often adulterated because they are not regulated. Yep. And again. For Rosa Luxemburg, for Jacobin, it's you calling for restrictions and bans on these products that pushes people into the black market for these products. And it, it's a, it's a very right. serious problem all over the world, especially in Africa. Farmers buy products that may or may not be what they claim to be. So, so, so in That's other right. words, you are part of this pesticide poisoning problem by pushing against careful regulation of these products. That's right. Um, okay, just the final thing before we wrap up for the day. I got a little bit of thoughtful criticism on this story. Um, I get lots of criticism on my stories. Most of it is not thoughtful. Most of it is just <laughs> your corporate shill, and I say, yeah, whatever. Um, but in this case, you know, someone came to me and they said, it's a great story. Thank you for writing it. But you used a lot of inflammatory language. You called them Marxists. You called them socialists. And you, you sort of gave the impression that you're making this a partisan issue. And I totally get that. One thing that I, I dislike in, in modern, any kind of debate, but in modern political arguments especially, is if, if someone disagrees with you, you will say, um, this person's a fascist, or this person is a radical kook, or whatever. And I think that's typically bad. Because if you're in a dialogue with someone, just address what they're saying, um, and don't don't insult them. you know. But my, my gentle pushback here would be, these people are openly saying we are Marxists and we want socialism yeah. in America, you know? So if, if mm -hmm. they're going to call themselves 
these terms and they're going to openly endorse this ideology that's killed millions upon millions of people, then yeah. I am going to point that out. So I just wanted to make that clear that I'm not, I'm not here to tell you to vote for a certain party or to hold a certain political ideology. None of that, you know, obviously I have my opinions and some of those probably come through, but I'm not here. That's not the purpose of the show. The reason I use those terms in this case is because these are people that say, we're the bad idea people. We are. Us. We like dumb ideas. <laughs> we so, are socialists. Right. That's what they right. say. So yeah, in that so. case, um, I'm going to call it out. And and again, another thing I should say, there are a lot of people that probably would describe themselves as socialists who don't endorse these ideas. That's so right. You don't, it, so you don't have to be a scientific ignoramus if if you have a left-wing idea. That's That's not what I'm saying either. I'm just saying in this case, these are the people saying, we are this. And this is bad for people. That's all. That's the only point I was making. So that's right. And we have we had lots of experienced evidence based evidence based agriculture to support that claim, right? So yeah, I think that that's that's valid. And I agree with you. I think it's free speech is important. You're allowed to think what you want. You're allowed to say what you want. Um, and you know, if people there there are plenty of people on the on the right that are um, equally yes. <laughs> as as uh, as have anti-scientific ideas let's just yeah say. and that's what's so fascinating to me and i just before we i don't want to talk too long but it is it is really fascinating that these scientific and public health issues they bring so many strange people together you know i mean we've talked about yeah. rfk jr, jr. getting that's getting exactly support right. from people who are right wing on many issues because he says vaccines are dangerous and they're like yeah yeah, those are regulated by the by big government. I don't like big government. Vaccines are stupid, you know. So there's all kinds of people that agree on nothing, but they will they will agree like, yeah, yes. these are mind control. You know, there's a microchip in the vaccine or what? Like they will all they'll all go along with that. So um, so yeah. So yes, we have bipartisan missed the spelling to do. Yes, yes, Every, everyone's guilty of it on occasion. So that's it. I just wanted to briefly mention that. Thank you, as always, for, for the feedback. We've gotten a lot in the, the last few months, and it's great. We love, Sometimes we address it offline because people don't want attention brought to their comments. Sometimes, you know, they want to talk about it, and that's great. We really do like the feedback. And, of course, there's always an open invitation to everyone that we criticize, you know. So if someone from Rosa yep. Luxemburg has the courage to come on this show, <laughs> Welcome. Yes, red carpet is rolled out. Because um, we love talking about this. But that's it. We'll leave it there for the week. Thank you for listening or watching, however you consume this show. We are on social media, Twitter, X, whatever it's called, uh, at Dr. Liza MD, at Cam J English. Genetic Literacy Project is at Genetic Literacy. And as always, thank you to them because they publish all this content. They, they put out our show. Um, and as I say, we don't speak for them, but they give us a platform to have these discussions. And I love that very much. So thank you to them. And with that, we will see everyone next time. Bye-bye.